escapingthecave.com. Also on Facebook and at ETC Pod on Twitter. Now, here's Mr. Sunshine with a flashback to 2014. Oh, the way back took us way back instantly. I could not believe the stuff that I was hearing and reading. And it was beyond just run-of-the-mill ignorance. I've been hearing things that are so ridiculous and patently not only un-American, but just infantile, almost always from self-proclaimed patriots, that they stop me in my tracks and patently just false that they shock and astound me to the point of being speechless. Me, speechless, me, can you believe that? It's as though these thoughts have been conceived with the intention of being so stupid that when said with a straight face, they just stupefy, literally stupefy who's ever there to hear it. Stupefy them into shocked, befuddled silence as though the new fascist tactic is to, I don't know, confound the opposition with sheer, utter, brazen, and repeated fucktartery. <laughs> it's mislabeled as straight talk. And here's the kicker. This wasn't happening off in isolation somewhere. The thoughts were being repeated by different people in different places. They were getting it from somewhere. They were parroting. Same talking points, same arguments, same cheap propaganda slogans. Anchor country back, sheep the difference here is that they've recently plunged over the cliff and into the sea of unabashed stupidity. I saw that he had uh, posted something on the Proud White American Facebook page. To my everlasting regret and chagrin, I had to check out that page, especially considering the stuff that I had been seeing, you know, after Ferguson. And holy fuck, I found, finally, I think the spring, the source of where all this unabashed stupidity and ignorance was coming from. It was here all along, man. Some of them had just simply run off the reservation after Ferguson. They'd taken their message outside of the echo chambers, presumably, I don't know, engorged with reinforced ignorance enough to assume that it would play out here, (laughs) in the real world. And this page, this proud white American Facebook page, makes 1955 look like Woodstock. I discovered that there are other proud racist pages to behold as well. Pages like Stop White Genocide. They're not trying to stop whites from committing genocide. They literally believe that the white race is being exterminated by Obama and the socialist, godless liberals with their diversity, which is, of course, to them, really the mongrelization of the races, the end of the proud white race. There are plenty more out there. Pages like Pissed Off White Americans, Uh, another one, White and Proud. There's one called Europe for Europeans, and on and on and on. It's not just the United States. This isn't just an American thing. These pages are not hard to find. But they do tend to vanish when enough people report them to Facebook. Uh, In fact, one group solicited emails so that they could rebuild their Facebook clan when they were finally lynched by that race traitor Zuckerberg. And by perusing these sites and adding them to my feed for the last few weeks, I've finally come to understand where this staggering ignorance that's being proudly displayed as though it's philosophical brilliance was, was coming from. And the links on these pages, they looked awfully familiar. It was the same shit coming from the same places that was being shared by my recently exiled Facebook pals. You know, I've been talking about echo chambers, yet I think I underestimated just how bad the problem is. 
We are not only divided. We are living in different fucking dimensions with different intellectual laws of physics and vastly different interpretations of what the facts are. In their world, Obama, literally, to them, Obama really is the Antichrist. He's not only incompetent, but you know what? He's in cahoots with ISIS and plotting to destroy America by letting Muslim extremists cross the border with diseased illegals and execute terrorist attacks. Why, you ask? Well, so he can institute martial law, or worse, Sharia law. That's what he wants. He wants Sharia law brought to the shores of America. Seriously. They literally believe, ferociously, this Glenn Beck, Alex Jones shit. Many of these people really believe that liberals want to eradicate their religion and put all Christians in FEMA camps. And yeah, many really do believe, again fiercely, that diversity is code for white genocide. They have become the victim. They have become the persecuted. They are the ones that are being threatened. There's an enemy now. And those are the two things that fascists need. They need to be persecuted, and they need an enemy. And they have several. I could go on and on. It just, it, it makes me sick to think that the version of bat shittery that I was exposed to last month was the watered-down version. I said that if another 9-11 were to hit this week, that I don't think we would tear another country apart like we did Iraq and Afghanistan in the last decade. And perhaps I'm wrong. I hope so. But I'm legitimately afraid that we would tear ourselves to shreds. Ideological civil war. I think it's a real threat now. Ferguson and its aftermath was only a tiny, tiny little barometer, I think now, of where we really are. And I think I, myself, even with things, even with things like my Independence Day podcast that I thought <laughs> was possibly over the line, I think I may have underestimated and understated the condition that we're in right now. I was absolutely right back in 2014. That was recorded in August again from the uh, Slithering Fascism and Tribal Warfare podcast. I was dead on again. in that, Especially in that last statement. I completely and woefully underestimated the condition we're in. Even then. And I played that. Decided to chop it down a little bit. I wanted to open the podcast with that because of the news that uh, came along this week about Cambridge Analytica, since my last podcast anyway, and the disinformation campaign, the targeting of data. I'm more concerned with the disinformation campaign that's sort of been shoved underneath the carpet as liberal America with its subtext that Donald Trump somehow didn't win the election. <laughs> Because of Cambridge Analytica. That's the whole uh, sub-foundation of why this is such a big story. If you didn't understand that data mining was going on before, there's something wrong with you. You probably shouldn't be on the internet. If you didn't understand that. No, this is such an outrage around liberal America now. Because they're trying, subconsciously a lot of the time, to tie this in to Donald Trump and his election. The data mining. What's being forgotten is the disinformation campaign. And I suspect I cannot prove this. I'm not saying I can. I have a very, very strong suspicion, though, that what I was referring to in the open four years ago, almost four years ago, was the disinformation campaign. I think I was seeing 
at the time, effects and results of it. I think that's exactly what that was. The intelligence community, most people think that the Russians, even all the way up to Facebook, Zuckerberg mentioned that in his CNN interview this week, <clears throat> suspect that the goal of the Russians was not so much to affect votes as much as it was to divide us down the middle into our ideological camps so we start tearing each other apart. This is like a slow burn 9-11 that I was afraid of <laughs> in some weird way. But I think that's it. I think that's exactly what I was seeing back then. So how does that tie into the podcast today? It ties directly into the podcast. This is the beginning of the social media disease opus. I don't know how many episodes this is going to take up. It's going to take up more than one, I can tell you that. And the problem is, is that there are so many of us, even if it were proven that this was a Russian disinformation propaganda campaign targeted to rip us into, with a bunch of bullshit, this stupefyingly dumb propaganda that people were willing to ingest. Even if it was proven that that was the case, there are millions and millions and millions of people, not only in the United States, I think this is happening all over the place. I think this is part of the, the uh, fascist movement in, in Europe as well. But let's concern ourselves with, with this country for right now. There are millions of you, collectively, who would rather rip apart the fabric of society than admit to themselves, let alone anyone else, that they may have been duped by externalized and weaponized propaganda designed to divide us. Millions of you. And while I focused on the um, material targeted at conservatives back in 2014, it's suspected by everyone from the intelligence community again all the way up to Facebook that they fed it to both sides. Divide and conquer. And that's easy to do when the population is eager to participate out of tribalism. And now we have the means to do it. To congregate into these mobs, and repeat after me, mobs are inherently stupid, via the internet and social media. I was susceptible to this myself. I addressed it in the ideological drift topic that I attacked in one of the early episodes. I was firmly entrenched in Camp Liberal up until just about a year ago. It was easy. Really easy to see yourself as superior to somebody else. And it's also really easy to take that avenue to the point where you believe anything that's fed to you that reinforces it. I did it. Many of you are doing it right now. <sighs> you know, this would not be a problem if we were a population concerned with fact or even sophisticated enough to be interested interested, that's the key word here, in discerning truth from ego-targeted propaganda. We are not. Most of you cannot tell the difference between a news story you like and propaganda. You don't know if it's propaganda or not. You do not care most of the time. And social media has given us the platform 
and the technology and the means to connect with other people who will not challenge it and let us isolate ourselves off in this propaganda utopia where the only thing we see and the only thing we interact with on a positive way, in a positive way, the only discussions we have are with people who agree with us because we are not interested collectively in getting at the truth. We're not. Now, I understand life has always been your way, Todd. Not like this. There are some less accusatory, perhaps, explanations of this. Marshall McLuhan got into it in Understanding Media that when new technology comes along that people are not ready for, they're flooded with data. They're flooded with information that they do not have any concept of how to sort it out. They can't discern fact from, re- fact from fiction. There's too much of it to sort through, to think about. That's understandable. But what's not understandable and what is unforgivable, I think in my view, is to not care. And not care if what you're ingesting is fact or fiction. Reality, news, propaganda, not caring. I like it, therefore it is. No, it's not. It's not how it works. Social media is the means by which we isolate and sequester ourselves away inside of that echo chamber. At least today. And that's what I'm concerned with. And what follows is my meager attempt to at least counter it a little bit. Or, I hate the term, raising awareness, but that's what you need. You need some fucking awareness. Some mindfulness. This is my effort at that. Howdy, Tons Little Files, and welcome to episode number nine of the Escaping the Cave podcast. Donzilla Xpod on iTunes, Google Play, also over on Stitcher, and you can check me out at uh, uh, ChristopherMedia.net, or you can check out my website at uh, EscapingTheCave.com. Glad you're here. Sorry for the delay. I have been threatening you with this episode, if you're following me over on the Twitter, uh, for quite a while. And I uh, have a little bit of an issue with this, because there's a lot of material here. And I've had to essentially reevaluate a lot of this over the last couple of months. The idea started to sprout a long time ago with a social media disease, uh, probably about four or five years ago, and they've evolved, and they've evolved again over the last several months. So I've had to go through some of my material, I've had to go through my head, and kind of figure out where I'm at with much of this. And what we're going to start talking about basically centers around awareness, the social media thing, and what it's doing to us. Who we're becoming as we get lost in the imaginary world, the digital representation, the electronic eyes that many of us are starting to interpret the world through via the Internet and social media in particular. You know, in The Matrix, before he takes the waking pill, (laughs) Mr. Anderson, Neo, assumes his known existence is absolutely real that what he perceives as he is, in fact, him. Right? Uh, Once so rudely extracted from his Duracell pod, however, Neo learns that he was, in fact, experiencing life inside a virtual reality, a digital projection of himself inside a computer-simulated world known as the Matrix. His entire existence was as a digital avatar, 
a rendition of himself where everything, his hair, his clothes, all of it was a virtual manifestation of how he wanted to appear in his world. This is not far from the character that hundreds of millions of us have created to represent ourselves online. From OkCupid to, of course, Facebook, our digital brand all too often has so little connection to the physical existence, the flesh and blood human being, securely encased, hidden, and safely protected from prying judgmental eyes inside of the pot of reality. Are you with me? That's the nature of the internet, though, isn't it? People are free to let their imaginations and ego run free with little to no accountability. I say ego, you could apply that to the id. People believe they can freely reinvent themselves into whatever furry role-playing character they like while keeping the real organism, us, the organic matter, hidden behind the virtual veil where we can easily hide the flaws and deficiencies that make us vulnerable and generate self-consciousness. The veil conceals what I once described as a vulnerable child, one terrified and trembling at the thought of being exposed to the rest of the world. Naked child is a genuine human being. It's you. It is you. The core toward which authenticity drills resides within each and every one of us. And when he feels safe and secure enough, when no one else but maybe the cat can see, he'll occasionally come out and play. That is foreshadowing there, kids. I've redubbed that the morrow of humanity. It is not quite ready for public consumption. And again, I mentioned the id a minute ago, and there seems to be at least two camps here. Uh, Traditionally, I've seen this core human being as something of a sympathetic figure, you know, the inner child, uh, someone hidden out of fear. Freud, it appears, would strongly disagree with me. Uh, He called it the id, I mentioned it a minute ago, and envisioned it as something to be tamed and then caged. Human barbarism. Remnants of our days killing each other out in the jungle. Eastern philosophy and Freud have two very different concepts of the ego. What I've been calling the ego, how I see it, my interpretation of it, Freud may have defined as the id, and his description may be the more accurate version. From what little I've learned, admittedly, his description sounds quite similar to something I've put a lot of thought into, dark side of human duality. Something that ties directly into what follows and something I'll get to eventually. More in depth. For now, I'm keeping my ego concept tethered to Eastern philosophy. I might change my mind and incorporate Freud's id uh, if and when I see fit. Yeah. Now, I would apologize for the confusion either, you know, in the present or in the future. But you're not paying me. <laughs> so instead, I'm going to say try to keep up, please. So the ego's avatar takes over, does whatever it can to promote our chosen brand. Right? While keeping the core, the embarrassingly flawed human being hidden, sort of insulated from the world. Differing degrees to which people promote and conceal themselves, but it's universal. It's a human trait. It's impossible to be completely authentic, especially online, because the nature of the medium and its landscape prevents it. Regardless of how closely you think your e-personality represents you, 
When you're interacting online, particularly on social media, it is not you. It can't be. It's the sanitized version comprising the digital rendition you've created for yourself. Mr. Anderson and Neo. When you go online, you do so with the you, in quotes, that you want everyone to see. It is universal. Now, if you're feeling a twinge of self-righteous outrage right now, Snowflake, and it's triggering the overwhelming urge to hit me with some truth, (laughs) that's your ego proximity alarm. Someone getting uncomfortably close to your secret. Here's the thing, man. People have been trying to reinvent themselves online from the very beginning. All the way back to the online forums early, early in the Internet. It's a simple, cheap deception. An exercise in playing dress-up and taking the costumed you out to promenade around the public square. In other cases, it's putting on a scary mask. So you can verbally assault whomever you see fit. Now, the fact is, we have only one self. A complete reinvention is impossible. The best anyone's ever done is becoming a much improved version of themselves. Who they are, even in the most dramatic cases, that is the best that anybody's ever done. Traditionally, most well-adjusted people eventually figure this out, and they stop trying to be someone else. The Internet has worked to obliterate the practice of self-acceptance, while at the same time, elevating faked displays of self-assured confidence to absurd, never-before-seen levels of thespian fuckery. Some of these are worthy of an Oscar nomination. Of course it has. As you spend more of your life acting as your avatar, it becomes clear that it's infinitely easier to simply enhance, promote, and defend the digital deception than it is to experience the pain of actually upgrading the fleshed model, which oftentimes sits ignored as a result. Insert internet-based psychological maladies right here. Now, early on with the internet, most of us fully understood and recognized when we were lifting, editing, and ostentatiously decorating our thoughts uh, before presenting them to others in order to trick them into believing we were smarter and more articulate But at some point, it became habit, and many began believing their own BS. Once upon a time, we consciously knew we were deceiving someone when we Googled random facts during a virtual conversation and then presented them as our own hard-earned knowledge and wisdom. Now, many people actually believe they're really as smart, in quotes, as their Google search. They actually believe it now. Plato had no concept of virtual connectivity when he wrote about Tamus and the illusion of wisdom. The Internet has taken that concept and blown it to the heliosphere. It's the most powerful informational tool mankind has ever devised. Ever, by far, exponentially greater than anything. But rather than enlightening the species with access to knowledge, the Internet has fallen into the hands of millions of intellectual imposters, each taking disjointed pieces of data, you know, skipping the next step, knowledge, by ignorantly confusing the two, data and knowledge, and then cleverly presenting their cherry-picked fragments of random, often questionable pieces of information as wisdom without actually having the slightest clue what they're babbling about. 
Now, of course, you know that this permeates everything online and increasingly in the world. I'll get to that later. It's the curse of thoughtless opinion. People offering quote-unquote truth bombs comprised of whatever disconnected data loaf (laughs) manages to float to the top of their septic tank mind at that moment. It's typically easy to tell who's never actually thought about the very thing they presume to speak so authoritatively about. They read part of a paragraph in an article somewhere. So yeah, instant expert on everything. It's click, skim, bounce. This is nearly what all of our self-proclaimed internet scholars consider doing their research. Click, skim, bounce. I found a piece of information. Here's my research. I don't know what it means. I have no context. I can't connect it to anything, but here it is. Wisdom. Research. (sighs) You know, it's embodied in an old website that summed up grapes of wrath like this. I'm quoting here. Times are hard. Sister breastfeeding homeless guy. I'm so out of here. That was an online book review. And it led a few million virtual chimps to believe that they were all of a sudden Steinbeck aficionados. They were suddenly literary authorities, and their newly democratized virtual opinions were just as valid after six seconds of reading as everyone else who, you know, actually read the entire damn book. If you were to ask these babbling avatars what exactly they got from Connie in Grapes of Wrath, or Elizabeth, what would they say? And if you were to do that when their phone or computer was out of reach, be an indecipherable hoot and a derptastic holler as they try to fill in the cognitive blanks. Now, if they do have connection to the Internet at that point, maybe you'll strike uh, gold, as I have several times, and be able to paste their retort into Google and trace the exact source from whom they lifted their quote-unquote knowledgeable Reply. I have done this so many times, it's impossible for me to count. Used to be fun. Used to be fun to retort with URL. I know where you got this. Anymore, it's depressing. Politics, science, theology, applied at will, man. The lust for shallow horizontal data has been monetarily weaponized now. Why? Go see episode three. It sells. Because people are so eager to appear wise while being freed from the burden, the work of being wise. Why, again, it's simple and taken from a higher perspective, it's ominous. It's only the avatar's graphically designed costume that matters, especially on the massive pseudo-politics-to-power marketplace. It's better to appear right than to be right. More on that coming, too. If you don't believe me, and you're online, have a download of this. You're listening, streaming somehow. (laughs) Bounce over to your favorite social media website and do your research yourself. I've been screaming into what feels like a cacophony of nothing about the legend of Tamus for over a decade. Like a lot of you, I first noticed uh, much of this long before social media. Uh, It was in the comments sections, where the uh, egocentric avatar warfare and its astoundingly blatant and naked virtual ignorance first made itself apparent. 
I asked a former friend who'd become a psychiatrist. If people were actually that stupid, had I given human beings too much credit? He answered that people who posted to comment sections were, but no, not people in general. This was shortly before Facebook arrived, and in my mind, and to a degree, Facebook proved him wrong. People online, protected by the unaccountable and anonymous avatar, become faces in the mob. They take on a mob mentality, and mobs are categorically, stop me if you've heard this before, mobs are stupid. In short, yes, far beyond the confines of comment sections, digitized human beings are, quite often, really that stupid. They are. World's been brought together, all right. I don't recognize what tune these drunken mobs are slurring, but it sure as hell isn't kumbaya. Distorted versions of ourselves have freed us from almost all first-person accountability for the ego-slash-id orgy in which we engage. There was a time not so long ago in a universe not that far away when calling a random person even watered-down fractions of what's hurled around online meant you'd find yourself bleeding from the lip and probably tossed out of whatever establishment the two of you shared. There was a sense of personal decorum, an idea of when, where, and to whom it was appropriate to spew your gospel. Not anymore. Quite often, online comments and Facebook threads degenerate into virtual bar fights where everyone chooses sides and gleefully, gleefully clubs the random other with verbal beer bottles and pool cues. Because of this abandonment of any sense of accountability or even simple decency, discourse, even polite conversation, usually consists of people who, instead of listening, are simply waiting to inflict their opinions, their posts, their memorized memes on one another. I mentioned in an earlier episode and also on the Unregimented podcast this week, told the story on there if you want to go check it out over at ChristopherMedia.net. But I saw this firsthand in Phoenix at the end of 2016, but not only then. Also, later on in the trip, I didn't write this up. I wish I had. But when I encountered a fully erect Facebook-fueled cyborg... He was at an Iowa truck stop shortly before I thumbed my last ride home. It was only a few days after the election. I stopped to say hi to this large, sweaty beast, which he was. Uh, he decorated the cab of his semi with several Confederate flags. Knew what I was getting into. But I simply I went over to say hi simply because I saw that his truck was based out of Homer, Michigan. Real close to where I grew up. Figured I'd go say hi. Eh? And literally, proper use, the first thing out of his snout, while still shaking my hand, was something about how America was about to kick the living shit out of these socialized libtard motherfuckers. First thing out of his mouth. I, I, had not made, I hadn't made one political comment. Nothing. Nor was I displaying anything indicating I was political in any way, shape, or fashion. No, this was an Alex Jones preaching, make America great again singing, Trump bot, whose avatar had devoured the man, and in its place stood some sort of cyborg who thought he detected an available comment section on which to post. His almighty and holy political opinion, whether it was wanted or not. And it was clear that because of his doctorate from Breitbart U and the uh, home study course graciously provided by InfoWars, he uh, considered himself the patriotic reincarnation of Cicero. 
Now, on the flip side, something else I noticed, even during the week of the election, is that despite this notably angry, pulsating specimen, such cyborgs are rarely encountered when I'm hitchhiking around the country. And when they are, political affiliation does not correspond to the frequency of random cyborg attacks. Doesn't matter what side of the spectrum you fall on. Don't have a spreadsheet, but in my experience, more often than not, they're actually liberal. Shocking, huh? I know. (laughs) There's a saying in radio and other entertainment professions that your stage persona is you times ten. Reality TV, YouTube celebrities, advertising, and now the rise of avatars has infected all of society with that philosophy to the point where the over-amplified ego now speaks for the man himself. It's taken the inner child, the core of the human being, dressed it up like Mimi from the Drew Carey show. Or if you're a Freudian, it's released the Kraken of Id. And more ominously, the rise of the Avatar has ushered in the beginnings of our abandonment of thousands of years of social evolution. We've come to reject the socially cohesive skills of compromise required to ensure a polite and peaceful coexistence because we've largely, largely removed ourselves, in our short-sighted minds at least, the inconvenient need to do so. Dealing with real human beings face-to-face, it's much more difficult to ignore the perils of personal accountability that come with first-person realities. Organic interaction. The virtual veil hides and protects the drunken antisocial ego, or id, from physical and reality-grounding human reactions and consequences. Eye contact, facial expressions, verbal cues, body language, all of it. Even a fist to the mouth occasionally. All the things once indicating that maybe, just maybe, this is neither the right person nor the right place on which to inflict my righteous and holy opinion. Over the last 20 years, but specifically in the last 10, the avatars have hijacked the man. With a freedom from accountability to each other has followed the corresponding abandonment of accountability to facts. I see you over there, Moonbeam. Sit down. You too, John Boy. This trait isn't exclusive to one ideological cult or the other. Rather than being bothered to find middle ground via compromise, collectively, we've happily chosen to fillet our own ego. It's all about winning now. The appearance of right. Now, ten years after Facebook finally really blew up, showing off for other virtual avatar fabricants controlled by other cyberspace monkeys is now the obsession. There's no exploring of ideas or coming to any conclusions together. Legions of virtual crusaders take to the internet each and every day to spread their religion. That's it. To engage in holy war with whomever they deem as the heathens or the blasphemers. And again, the discourse and the dialogue is like defensive children. People who will not be humiliated. They are putting on a virtual performance in the Matrix for the audience. When you go online and you engage in a flame war or an argument with someone else, most of the time, you're not having a conversation at all. You will not be seen as being defeated in front of other avatars. It's like a cage match to the death, except you can't touch each other. Defensive children. 
Obviously, the Internet and social media has provided an easy means to congregate into our chosen virtual mobs as well with others who will happily reinforce whatever reality we choose to conveniently believe, fact-based or not, as long as we return the favor. Rational thought to a mob is a surefire path to a beating, <laughs> literally and figuratively. Social contracts begun breaking down. Rather than bringing us together, social media in particular is proving to be the catalyst for our return to the pre-civilized age of barbarism. Oh yeah, and there are uh, stockpiles of nukes right over there. Now this is just the opening salvo to give you an idea where I'm coming from. I have more, and we're going to get to that. But it is, this isn't as paradoxical as it may at first seem. Now, cyborgs aside, you won't find a truly authentic representation of people nor find an accurate portrayal of the world on any device's screen. You'll find slivered perspectives at best. At worst, an intentional, agenda-driven distortion. Deceptive enhancement is by far the most common use of LEDs in 2018. The sole way to see things as they are, and therefore call things by their proper name, is to see them for yourself, firsthand, disinfected and vaccinated from lingering dogma, by escaping the cave, so as to once again learn to employ your own flesh and blood eyes. I'd almost guarantee that if you set forth without expectations, with a mind freed from confirmation bias, the world will look nothing like the clickbait fiction your device pumps into your mind each second of each hour of each day. I'd encourage you, if you can, do the experiment for yourself. And I suspect when you plug back in, you too will feel slightly schizophrenic, <laughs> torn between two inner voices, one digital, the avatar's voice, and the other analog, organic, driven by what you've actually seen with your flesh and blood eyes. And that may be the only thing that can save us. Sausage party hope, I know. <laughs> Good luck, right? Now, perhaps some of you think I'm preaching a little bit today. Maybe. Sorry. But what I've decided to do uh, was to start this whole thing off. And no, I really haven't even started yet. <laughs> That's the encapsulated version. And what I decided to do uh, was begin with my own story. Uh, both as a cautionary example and perhaps a mirror. I'll say it now and I'm going to say it again. I made mistakes. I made big ones, blind ones, and some of the damage will never be repaired. Some people I considered significant have been lost to the virtual Kraken forever. But you need to understand and understand that I know, okay, that I wasn't alone here. Obviously, I had a lot of help. Much of the last 10 years was something like being part of a drunken juvenile mob rampaging through the neighborhood. But to be fair, like kids, most of us didn't know any better. I'll get to that very soon. But for right now, let's go back to 2008, shall we? Sweet. In the book Travels with Charlie, John Steinbeck wrote about returning to his hometown of Salinas, California as an old man. Been gone for decades, becoming a famous writer, and he wanted to see the old places and faces, reconcile his long-lost youth with the aging present. In the end, he realizes the old cliché is true. You can't go home again. Life went on without him. The people embodying his memories were dead. 
and they'd have been replaced by something or someone much different. And time goes on, whether we're there or not. When he realized the old connections were hopelessly altered, if not completely gone, at first Steinbeck wanted to label his old friends as ghosts. Right? Egocentric perspective? Of course he did. He also experienced something I and millions of others have come to see over the last 10 years. That trying too hard to fit that new person into our memory's 30-year-old jacket seldom works. And trying too hard only ruins the, I don't know, comforting Polaroids of the mind. The glimpses, the images you have, the good ones, of these people from the past. What was once a fond memory, a friendly ghost, suddenly destroyed or at best irreparably changed. In the end, Steinbeck came to see that since he'd left, he was the one that's left, that had left, they weren't the ghosts, he was. Now, like Steinbeck, I effectively died when I chose to permanently leave my hometown 21 years ago. To those who had never left and the legions of friends and acquaintances remaining whom I'd lost touch with, I became a static memory. To them, and them to me, I was still the same age as when they last saw me. I was still a fun-loving, irresponsible punk, drunk most of the time, at a depth similar to the beer can I was probably still chugging in their mind's eye. I managed to keep in sporadic touch with a few people over the decades, but as is usually the case, the overwhelming majority just faded away, naturally, out of simple and mutual neglect. We'd steadily become irrelevant to one another as life happened, and others filled the void. That's life. There's nothing wrong with it. We all understood the unspoken game, and on the rare occasions that we'd cross paths again, we'd catch up, we'd laugh, and then promise to stay in touch this time. And sometimes we did. (laughs) At least for a month or two. Remember? And the whole process repeated itself. Fade away. Until we saw each other again. Human beings have been experiencing variations of this scene for thousands of years. Sometimes on scales of 2,000 miles, sometimes only 10 to 20, and sometimes within the same small, tight-knit community where they were born. People change. People move on. Literally and or figuratively. We understood that. Even if we weren't really, you know, overjoyed with it, we got it. And we were never expected to drag old friendship baggage into each phase of our lives until we died. Then came the internet. First email, and then early websites like Classmates. Remember that site? (laughs) They made staying in touch a bit easier. But it was one-to-one. And it still required legitimate effort. Even if it was only remembering, then managing to write a message via email. Then came MySpace which was, thankfully, just ridiculous enough not to really suck the entire world in. And then came Facebook. My Facebook story began in September of 2008. That's when I first opened my account. It was just a couple of weeks after my first summer of hitchhiking ended, and my early experiences with what's become the blue and white menace is probably familiar to a lot of you. People just started appearing. Names I had not even thought of in 10 years suddenly popped up via friend requests. And there were elements of, holy crap, she's still hot. 
Yeah, my uh, nearby cats heard that several times as I uh, clicked through the growing stockpiles of posted pictures. Yeah, don't you judge me. You know you did it too. Most of you still do. You're not fooling anybody, least of which your friendly virtual Toddzilla. Sorry. Now, while there were certainly some slight symptoms of the incubating disease, in the early days they were overshadowed by all these admittedly neat reconnections. Those fresh new pioneering days also coincided with our approaching 20-year class reunion, which happened in 2009. As the winter wore on and I began plotting what turned out to be 2009's landmark hitchhiking adventures, it seemed to me that we didn't need to even bother having a real reunion. We'd already had it on Facebook. What's the point? In January and February of 2009, through Facebook, I connected with long-lost family. Found the younger half-sisters I'd met in the mid-90s, found them on Facebook, and through them uh, made contact with another older sister, Michelle, whom I had never met. And by the time Chris and I boarded the veggie bus in Santa Fe, bound for the East Coast in April, uh, Michelle and I had begun plotting when and where we'd meet in person for the first time, all through Facebook. Facebook was the catalyst for this. It was how we'd first met. In addition to email, it was also how we now communicated. In seven short months, social media had burrowed itself into my life and felt nearly essential. By June of 2009, I met Michelle, was back in Michigan having my own 11-year reunion and meeting more, quote-unquote, new family. Younger brother, three nephews, and niece. And through it all, managed to set up the second meeting ever with my dad. Beyond that, I now had the means to stay in touch with all these characters that I was meeting on the road. It was easy, man. Like, Eureka, this is great. Woo, Facebook, Facebook. Again, all of this was triggered and maintained on Facebook. To claim everything was always a negative would be a deceptively hypocritical lie. I'm not saying that at all. But while the warning signals were not glaring, by August of 2009, things had begun slowly changing. I was noticing that the writing that I'd begun the summer before, pre-Facebook, was increasingly done just so I could post it. At various levels, my traveling became more of a product to be delivered to viewers and readers. I noticed it. What I missed was how addictive and distracting it was, how it was dragging me off course into something that would become destructive, not only to myself, but eventually to these quote-unquote new relationships. By 2010, the descent into negativity was in full force. My online persona, the avatar, had hatched. Now, I had already been ranting about politics and religion, but I consider Tanzilla's birthday to be the day that Sarah Palin arrived on the national scene. But after that, it elevated several notches as the Tea Party gained prominence and became more vocal. The echo chambers were probably there before. Okay, I understand that to some degree. But I remember them coming to prominence sometime before the 2010 midterm elections, then growing exponentially thereafter. Of course, there were always some types of political brawls. Not saying there weren't, but it seems that the Facebook Rubicon was crossed in the winter of 2009-2010. Maybe I'm misremembering. Doesn't really matter. I do know that my game <laughs> elevated right around then, thanks in large part uh, to riding with this guy named Doug, the reptilian teabagger, in August of 2010. With the Demon Podcast up, there's no need to rehash the next three or four years other than to say that whatever positive Facebook brought forth in 2008 and 2009 were suddenly gone. 
The newness of the technology and the reunions had long since faded away to be replaced by something sinister. Tribal divisiveness. Flaming. Ordinary. Everyday viciousness. Opinions. No longer opinions. They became a matter of right and wrong. Then they became a matter of good versus evil. That's where we're at now. I mean, how hard is it to demonize and abandon all sense of commonality with those who your opinions, your ideology, your religion, political or otherwise, judge to be evil? Yes, Todd Zillophiles, I was as guilty as anyone. I played that socially cannibalistic hunger game better than most of you did. It's intoxicating. Combined with the ideological riptide I mentioned in the other podcasts, my inner ape's tribal, self-supreme, lynch-the-ouslanders ego loved it. Now, if you'd like some more background on all this, uh, you can go to the website, escapingcave.com, look for the dopamine drip post. It's written. It's text. Go find that. Uh, it goes a little bit further into this. I'm not going to rehash all of that here. You can do some legwork on your own. A little theme alert there. Now, by 2014... This is in the Demon Podcast. Some of this is. I'm going to rehash it here. It's also in the Dopamine uh, post at the website. But I, I, I want to go back into this just a little bit. Uh, by 2014, the embryonic digital detox social media disease ideas were starting to rumble a little bit. Now, in my own contemporary terms, as used on the website here in the podcast, I began seeing the disease and its effects while at the same time beginning the process of pruning synapses, purging my friends lists, and uh, cutting the noise. I didn't have much of a concept of the bigger ideas at work in my mind back then, admittedly. But I could clearly see that social media had gone from that neat little tool of 2008 to something vile, especially after producing that slithering fascism tribal warfare podcast regarding fake news and pre-Trump Trumpism. It was obvious that it had gone from bringing people together to an amplifying and distorting voice for the worst part of tribal human ego divisiveness. By the time the digital detox took root in late 2016, my past had become a Facebook killing field. Almost all of my old radio colleagues had been purged or had purged me. Well, of course they had. Who could blame them? These poor people had no idea who this Toddzilla person was. I seldom even mentioned politics back then, let alone ranted about it when they knew me. Religion? <clears throat> no. Not to say I was a perfect co-worker, now, understand that, but I certainly wasn't that. You know, it's tempting to sit here and obsess on my own mistakes, focus on them, and I will. But I'm also going to be fair to myself and reiterate, probably many times, I sure as hell wasn't alone in this. I can't count how many people from my younger years had suddenly become derptastic political pundits. At least in their own minds, and uh, in those comprising their new echo chambers. I didn't keep track, but I'd guess that 60% of the bodies lying in my Facebook boneyard are those folks. But these virtual tentacles now, they reach far beyond Facebook, Twitter, and your little devices. While the avatars are virtual, the people behind them are real. Whether we remember it or not... And so was the damage done to the friendships, especially if I hadn't seen these folks in 20 years. It wasn't just their Matrix avatar. I was no longer interested in they themselves. In the real world. Now, right or wrong, from my perspective, their avatars killed and consumed the human being. 
I consider myself reasonably smart, clearly, (laughs) but sometimes I am remedially slow in connecting the obvious. And this was one of those cases. If they are affecting me this way, of course I'm affecting others the same. My avatar killed me and effectively destroyed whatever past we had in their eyes as well. We being several people, many people. All right, You know, I, I feel like I'm employing some false humility here. To say I was completely oblivious is misleading. A little bit. Caught up in the fog of cyber war, it's probably more accurate to say that most often I just didn't care. Nor did I ever think I would. And let me be bluntly honest here. In the vast majority of these cases, even today I think I was right in letting them go. Functionally, most of these folks were just returned to their pre-Facebook relationship status of none. Most cases without Facebook, we never would have bothered to reconnect at all. What did I lose? The past, good memories, friendly ghosts, I guess, and the incessant, recycled, and most importantly, unsolicited thoughts and opinions along with it. I've already alluded to it. More on these holy opinions are in past episodes, and more is coming. Much more. Not just yet. So yeah, for the most part, I'm fine with most of these exiled avatars not having a virtual all-access key to my den. Uh, What I'm definitely not fine with, though, is my part in the damage done. What our bloodthirsty avatars have done and continue to do to us collectively and what the ultimate consequences will be. I'm also definitely not fine with having mindlessly thrown fine wine. Good people out with the rotten milk. I hate that. I hate that that happened. In a lot of cases, I won't be able to correct that. But I can be accountable. And I will be. Now, there's one thing that we each have to understand and more importantly, remember. When social media first hit us, There was no manual. There was no blueprint. No book of social media etiquette, right? Nothing to warn us of the side effects and, more importantly, the consequences. That's because we, right now, in 2018, are writing it this very minute. They're going to be studying us in 100 years. But while our descendants will have the benefit of hindsight, hey there, descendants, if I'm still here, uh, we've been stumbling along blind making predictably ignorant mistakes along the way. God knows I was. I was remedially slow, almost clinically retarded in seeing it as it applied to me. We are cyberspace monkeys. We're figuring it out right now. The experiment is being done on us. And we may be lucky to survive it culturally. You know, Facebook, as I said, it exhumes these skeletons from the friendship boneyard and obliterates what had become the natural order of things. Over the course of several thousand years, we instinctively figured out, as I said, that everyone isn't entitled, required, obligated to accompany us through every part of our lives. People change. We evolve. We grow apart. There's nothing wrong with that again. Old friends and acquaintances, they, you know, silently fall out of our lives, out of neglect, lose touch. But why? It was no mystery, man. Friendship actually required effort to be maintained. And for many of life's bit players, the effort far outweighed the reward. 
It was an inevitable bump in the road. We knew it. We accepted it. We moved on. But now, every kid from fourth grade or our first job thinks that beyond the beyond that fun and frisky first virtual reunion, they're on the same social footing as those who are actually relevant. Hey, Facebook declared we're still friends, so we must be even though we haven't laid eyes on each other in years. What? It's been decades? How cool! Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes, no. And with that often comes uh, an expired and presumptuous uh, sense of familiarity. You know what I mean? By familiarity. Also, for those who never left their hometown, unlike me, uh, the passage of time was sort of linear. They occasionally see people over the years, therefore the gradual changes were put into personally relative context. Uh, But not so for those of us who left. (laughs) No And then when Facebook came along, suddenly reintroduced us, the changes were dramatic. From both perspectives, man, the person in front of us, seen on our LED screens via Facebook, was often only, and sometimes barely, familiar in the now wrinkled flesh. In most cases, there was a reason why we weren't in touch before Facebook reanimated legions of these corpses. Suddenly, hundreds of these old memories once again had life. They were reanimated and were wobbling down the path from Old Pal Cemetery. They walked through the front door we unwittingly left open and plopped themselves down on our virtual couch. And because of the nature of the medium, they just wouldn't leave. Sometimes the horror of what Facebook resurrected was unbearable. (laughs) Right? It sort of looks like the guy life buried years ago, but... Oh my god, what the hell is that thing? Sometimes, that is better. Hashtag, the gospel of Judd. <laughs> right? Uh, of course, there are surprising instances of reconnecting uh, with someone and learning that you now have infinitely more in common than way back then. I got several examples of that. I enjoy them. And if they sustain themselves, I treasure these finds. I really do. And with some folks, you can pick up where you left off. No doubt. But because of my life track and the personal changes that I've undergone, especially in the last decade, that's rare. Really rare. I've become a believer in what I call friendship capital. And that balance, it shrinks steadily over time if you and I have not been in touch and more quickly shrinks if we have nothing left in common but the long dead glory days. Whether it was you or your old friends who've changed, it really doesn't matter. It's the fissure that's important today. Classifying decades of interpersonal tectonics, it's mental masturbation. It doesn't matter why. There's a reason we lost touch. If there's no fresh commonality, trust in that. You don't owe anything. Don't be afraid or feel bad about letting the baggage go. I don't think I've mentioned the uh, useless shit epiphany in this piece yet, have I? <laughs> Silly me. Knew that was coming. Anyway, new, you know, youth, youthful nostalgia. It's alluring. It really is. Especially as you get older. Temporarily turning back time, you know. It can be tempting, although it's just an illusion. Can't do it. Can't go home again. And it's funny, even frustrating, how our old schemas and roles take over, too. Notice that? Even in middle age, 
I mean, we often feel as though we're still dealing with our 17-year-old counterpart sometimes. It really is like traveling back through time in some weird way. Uh, but only for a minute. When we try to stay too long or maintain it, it's like reviving our gang using the same old scripts for adult Spanky and Alfalfa. Familiar? Yeah, sure. Kinda. Ridiculous? Ultimately awkward? Absolutely. Yes, they're all here. Looking for love in all the wrong places. Looking for love. Once Buckwheat sings a song, it's eternally his. Did that? Did it die? Then on the daddy die? <laughs> for some people, like me, uh, this can be downright toxic, particularly for me. I've talked about this before. I spent a month at a friend's house back, at, back home during the summer of 2012 and 2013. Uh, Brian always had a couple of kegs on tap as well as uh, all varieties of liquor stashed inside of his glorious man cave that he had before I got married. And I literally, proper use, I could not stay sober. I had to drink as soon as I woke up and literally thought I was going crazy. Especially in 2013. Uh, But far from it. What I figured out was that my new programming, who I'd become, was conflicting with the old program. I mentioned earlier, you can't become someone else, but you can improve and evolve who you are. And that was what happened. That returning to this familiar area and seeing these familiar faces who expected me to be the same version of myself that I was a long time ago. Couldn't do it. But I wanted to. I wanted to be that person for them because I wanted them to be that person to me. And I couldn't do it. Just couldn't do it. It it, uh, created an incredible amount of psychological friction, some unbearable uh, anxiety. And this happened again. Recently, I mentioned that we moved back to Michigan last month. After 14 years of being away from here, I am back in Kalamazoo, the site of my old radio haunts. No longer in radio. But now, I've had to come to terms with reconciling, being back, seeing familiar faces, hearing familiar voices, and reconciling who I was when I moved away from here 14 years ago with who I am now. And it's so tempting to default back to the old schematic. I actually considered trying (laughs) to go back into radio when I got back here. Despite everything I've said about radio, despite everything that I said in the uh, Dopamine Drip uh, post and in the Demon podcast, I thought that was perhaps at least something to be explored. And I found myself feeling exactly how I felt when I went back to my hometown in 2012 and 2013, waking up with an unbearable, unbearable, almost unexplainable, I mean, anxiety every single day. What have I done? What have I done? Oh, my God, I burned all these bridges. It was ridiculous. And what helped, I had to come to the realization that I couldn't reconcile who I was in 2004 with who I was in 2018. It was a useless act. I've evolved. I've changed. 
And if I were to consider actually going back into radio or (laughs) a horrific thought moving back to my hometown, that would entail pretending that the last 10 years, 14 years didn't exist. It didn't happen. But it did. So if radio were to fit back into my life, it would have to fit into my life and who I've become. I was not going to change who I was and who I've become and all the work. I was not going to throw all of the work that I've done on myself out the window, basically erasing 14 years of my life to fit into a dying industry, an industry that should be put into hospice care (laughs) at this point. Why was I thinking that way? Because it was familiar. I had a default program, an operating system for Kalamazoo. And I considered it. I had to. I mean, just it's an obvious it's an obvious thing you have to consider. But based on the reaction that I got from myself, that was fool's folly, man. Fool's folly. Got me into this whole internal dialogue about the future of radio. Which what is the future of radio? Did you see the loop in Chicago? Forty year rock station, iconic radio station in Chicago was recently sold, I think it was a bankruptcy agreement or something like that, for My Heart Radio or Cumulus, I don't remember. doesn't matter. But now they're a Christian station. <laughs> they went from a 40-year rock or just this, this elevated radio station in Chicago, and now they're doing Christian broadcasting. Nobody I know that did radio, almost nobody I know that did radio, there are a few people, aren't in the business anymore. They didn't quit. They were downsized most of the time. Radio belongs in hospice care. That's another reason the anxiety hit me. It doesn't have a future. This, while I'm not disconnected enough to believe I'm going to have a wildly successful future in podcasting, podcasting has a future. It's in its adolescence. Has a future as an adult. Whereas, as I said, radio is entering its hospice care. But I did. I, I defaulted back to that just as I had in 2013 because the familiar is alluring. Nostalgia is alluring. You know, turning back time can be tempting. It's familiar. It's an illusion. And uh, like radio, Facebook had that effect on me. And what happened in both instances... 2012, 2013, and last month, is that ultimately I realized that I had already reconciled my past and learned that in almost no way was it reconcilable with who I've grown to be, both at home, my hometown, and in my old industry. Now, with a few notable exceptions, the two cannot coexist. The person I am now, my hometown, and my old industry. They just can't. Most cases, not all. Completely different person than I was even 15 years ago. Let alone 30. I'm a different goddamn species than I was 30 years ago. There you have it, kids. That's the opening salvo. Just the opening salvo of the social media disease. I laid out the premise here, I think, pretty well. There's more to it, though. You know, I talk about this sausage party hope thing, that you have to give people hope. People have to see a path forward. You can't just sit there 
and bitch and complain about things without trying to understand them, or at least, ideally, offering a path forward. If you're just bitching and complaining, it's like going into a cancer ward and reminding the patients they have cancer. You're better off just shutting your mouth. You're doing less damage that way. Hey, Billy! Looks like you lost all your hair and chemo! How long you got? That's what you're doing. If you don't take it a step further. I understand that. I'm not very good at it sometimes. <laughs> I'm not, but a lot of it's because I don't think people understand, see, comprehend what we're doing to ourselves. This tribalism. This win at all cost at the expense of truth and fact. I don't think people comprehend or appreciate the damage that's being done because you can't continue have a positive future like that. You know, I have this idea I got from uh, Stephen Hawking. He, he died a couple of weeks ago. Going to miss him. Humanity's going to miss him. But they had this thing on the Science Channel. And uh, I was just sitting there watching it, sort of got geeking out on it a little bit. And one of the ideas they put forth, one of the, one of the people, the ideas that were in the program was that everything in the universe is based on balance. That if you include dark matter, matter and space are in perfect balance. There's the same amount of matter and the same amount of emptiness in the universe, if you include the dark matter. Go research it. I'm not going to explain it here, but it's the idea of balance. Emerson and his transcendentalists also had similar ideas, similar thoughts on it as far as nature, examining nature to see God, however you want to look at it. I think there is a natural state of balance, and when things are out of balance, there's a corrective mechanism. I discussed this and went into it a little bit on the Enregimented podcast this week. I'd encourage you to go listen to that podcast. It's very good. Uh, and it has to do with radicalization. So in other words, if you're going to yank yourself into the ditch off to one side or another of the ideological spectrum, there's going to be a corrective force to counterbalance it, to put things back in the middle, to have a centrist balance. So in other words, if you radicalize yourself to the left... There's going to be a corresponding equal and opposite reaction to the right. And the only way, in my view, and a view that's solidifying, the only way to exist in a peaceful society is balance. Unforced balance. Compromise. Meeting in the middle. Because if you keep pushing to the left and they keep pushing to the right, you're pulling on that rope, eventually that rope is going to break. And nature is a brutal bastard of a beast. It will put itself back into balance one way or another. Whether you survive it or not is inconsequential. Whether we survive it or not is inconsequential. Apply this to the environment if you like. I'm not going to go there. But I think that is the fundamental principle at work. Balance. Negative and positive. Negative energy, positive energy. I mean, you could actually apply that to good and evil if you want. Because without evil, there is no good. Without good, there is no evil. Some philosophical stuff for you. I believe that. As I said, you know, just complaining about things... I don't want to be the guy running into hospice pointing fingers and laughing. I've come to the conclusion 
that the one way to cure the social media disease is organic interaction. You have got to start talking to each other on a human level. It's the only way. And I think, judging by the nature of social media, the avatars, the internet in general, and the uh, deceptive nature of it, I think the best way to do that, there are two ways. You're going to have these conversations and discussions, and you're going to see the world through electronic eyes. I think we have got to start acting authentically to strip our online presence as much away from the avatar as we possibly can. Be authentic human beings as much as as is possible. But the problem with that is that requires vulnerability. That requires a lot of time saying, rather than acting like you know something, acting like you're 100% sure of something, and then going off and finding whatever piece of information reinforces that premise, saying, I don't know occasionally. Maybe. What do you think? Asking other people what they think. And then when somebody asks you what you think, take the dogma out of it, put the Bible away, put the ideological Bible in the cupboard, and tell them what you think. Real interaction. And listening. You know, John Stuart Mill. I wasn't going to mention this. I was going to do this later on. I'm, I'm going to touch on it right now. John Stuart Mill's On Liberty uh, has come up several times. I've been reading it, actually, and then I started seeing it come up a lot. Excellent book. 1800s, enlightened guy. <laughs> One of the premises in that book is that Mill uh, doesn't think that ideas at all, any ideas, should be suppressed. They should all be discussed, and that if you hold a certain point of view, an opinion, rather than just focusing on forcing that opinion and that point of view on someone else, you should spend at least as much time learning and studying the opposing point of view and, and, and not just simply to get Hitler's war plans, no, to actually investigate to see if there's something factual in it, if they're right about something. And then you've got to be willing to change your recipe a little bit. If they are right, how do you incorporate that into your worldview? That requires excommunicating from your doctrine. That requires intellectual autonomy. And it requires independence. And that's something I see almost nothing of. You have to investigate the opposition's argument, according to John Stuart Mill and On Liberty, oftentimes more than you understand your own, to get the other perspective and where applicable, where appropriate, integrate it, adopt it. How do you do that in this left-right, black-white social structure that we're creating for ourselves? How do you do that? It would be, if I'm going to continue the analogy I started in episode two, like a Christian fundamentalist going and reading the Koran, <laughs> saying, hey, this makes sense. I think I'll adopt it. Blasphemer! Blasphemer. How many people do you know of who are willing to do that? I don't know too many. And that's the problem. And since that's the, the way society's moving, the way things are set up now, the way things are edging, the inevitable result of this, if it doesn't, if the inevitable result of this, if it's not changed, is the Middle East. Look at the Middle East. Muslims and Jews, they hate each other, they will not listen to each other, they will not sit down and talk to each other, they would rather blow themselves up. 
that's where we're headed right now. Because people will not listen, people will not talk to each other, they would rather win and throw memorized memes and doctrine and dogma at each other in an attempt to subjugate the Auslanders, the intellectual and ideological Auslander. I mentioned in another podcast, ideological concentration camps, that's what each of these sides are after. Conquering. They're crusading to either convert the barbarians or to put them into ideological concentration camps. Please enlighten me, dear listener, at toddzillax at gmail.com. Shoot me an email and tell me how you see that as a positive, peaceful future. I'd love to hear it. I put that out there six weeks ago. (laughs) Crickets. Nobody can tell me. That's what the social media disease is about. This is why I'm doing this. Somebody has got to be aware. Even if a couple of you suddenly begin to see, have a sense of awareness about what this is doing to us collectively, I'll feel better. But I can't just sit here and not say anything. I know what it did to me. I know what it did to my relationships. It made me aware, I think, of what it's doing to us collectively. As a culture and a species. And I'm terrified where it's headed. And what's even more terrifying is the lack of interest people have in the damage being done by this scorched earth policy of treating the barbarians in this convert or die way. What we need is a third way. One that's not left or right. That's what's ultimately going to be required. A spirit of compromise, meeting in the middle, and not seeing each other as congregations that we hate. Where if you're not a member of the congregation, you're one of the unfaithful. That's what we need. I don't see it happening anywhere. But it has to. And... I mentioned a minute ago that if you're going to do it online, authenticity. And authenticity requires vulnerability. But unfortunately, the Internet is where vulnerability is gang-raped. Brutalized, isn't it? Well, that's just the Internet, Todd. <laughs> no, that's just an excuse to let your id roam free in a state of anarchy. It's not just the internet. You're just being a dick. Quit explaining it away like that. Treating people with a little respect. At least pretending like you're interested in the truth. Getting to solutions. Almost none of that out there. The other alternative is to digitally detox. Unplug completely. Look people in the face. Understanding consequences, understanding when to talk to somebody, how to talk to somebody. When your opinion is appropriate, when you need to just shut the hell up. A lot of people need that. I needed that once upon a time. I got it. But organic interaction, 
is far and away the best way to do this. The best way to get to an understanding with someone is organically looking them in the eye, having a real dialogue. But the problem is, I've tried this with some success, but a lot of times what you're doing is you're in you're engaging someone organically who's not engaging back organically. They're bringing what they found on the interwebs, what they found over there in the matrix. They bring that into the real world, and that's what they want you to believe is thought. The difference between parroting and thinking. Memorization and cognitive activity. I don't think people realize that, that thinking and memorizing are two different things. Two very, very different things with two very, very different results. Anyway, as I said, we went into a lot of this in depth. It's a long podcast, man. Grab a sandwich where you sit down, but head on over to ChristopherMedia.net and uh, check out the Unregimented podcast uh, for this week. It's likely these are coming out really close to the same day. This may be out Friday, Saturday this week. I'm not sure. I'm recording this on a Friday. Um, but I would check it out. And I'd really encourage you to meditate on these things. Pay attention to what you see while you're online. Pay attention to where these things are coming from. Is this person a minister? Is he ministering? Is he on a crusade? Is this sort of like a missionary competition? <laughs> Whoever spreads the propaganda and doctrine and scripture the most successfully and the, the, the most witty gets a reward of likes? And, and watch how these interactions, these flames, these wars, these battles are cage matches to the rhetorical death. And imagine the person sitting behind the keyboard not wanting to be seen as being defeated and how that plays into the cage match to the rhetorical death. Pay attention to that. That if you can't change that, you're not going to be able to change those folks. You're not going to be able to let you interject and say, hey, come on, stop. It just makes things worse. But absent that, make sure you're not part of that problem. The one thing I do like about podcasting is that you're listening to this one-on-one. -on -one. You and I have a one-on-one -on -one interaction right now. I know we're not doing this in real time. But you're listening to it alone. You can take what I'm saying, you can internalize it, you can do whatever you like with it. Nobody's going to judge you. Nobody's even going to know you're doing it. You're not listening to this in an auditorium. Nobody's looking at your reactions. You can take this and you can internalize it, intellectualize it, any way you see fit. And nobody has to know. One thing I really do like about this medium, just you and I. So, what are you going to do with it? You're going to look at it. You're going to put your hands over your eyes, your fingers in your ears, and continue to be part of the problem. It's up to you. All right. On that note, thanks for listening to the podcast. It is uh, the Escaping the Cave podcast at escapingthecave.com. You can also get me on Google Play and on iTunes. I'm over at Stitcher as well. All the links, the subscribe links, are on the website, escapingthecave.com. And, of course, you can see me, uh, check me out over at ChristopherMedia.net and uh, check out all of the other shows over there as well. Now, the Twitter feed is at ETCPod, and you can get my Facebook page as well if you like. And uh, don't forget to like, share, and uh, comment, rate, all that good stuff on the podcast if you're enjoying it. We'll talk to you next time. So long.